Welcome to the Conflict Tipping Podcast with Dr. Laura May. Hello and welcome to the Conflict Tipping Podcast from Mediate.com, the podcast that explores social conflict and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Laura May, and today I'm coming from you in my living room where I'm doing the first in-person podcast with the wonderful Zdena Mkechwa Midanacht, PhD. She is a senior research consultant at ODS and her doctorate research, Whiteness in Migration. Her areas of interest are intersectionality, migration, whiteness, and apparently coffee from what I discovered this morning. <laughs> so welcome, Zdena. Thank you, Laura. Thank you. It's nice to be in your cozy living room. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, as people listening may have gathered, I actually have met Zdena before. We're in the same PhD program, we're in the same PhD school, I yeah. guess. And so I came across her research that way and I always thought it was super awesome. And so when I saw her the other week, I was like, you have to come on the podcast. You have no choice. If you try and say no, I'll be kidnapping you. So luckily there was no restraint required in this particular case. And so let's just jump straight in then because one of the things that first interested me in your research or first grabbed my attention was the idea of accents because being apparently a little narcissistic, when you started talking about accents in Australia, then I was like, oh, I'm paying attention. <laughs> so how did you start talking about accents in Australia, especially as it pertains to inclusion? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it, it was very interesting for me because I think it unpacked a lot of the assumptions that we make, particularly, I think, from the perspective of Zimbabwe when it comes to privilege and, and whiteness. So my research was looking at white Zimbabweans because in Zimbabwe, of course, because of colonialism and the structures that were set up during colonialism, Whiteness or being white is it amounts to structural privilege, economic privilege, etc. And in the context of migration, of course, the assumption was that when people migrate, so when white Zimbabweans migrate to other countries, for instance, to Australia, mm-hmm. um, you know, that they would experience life much easier, probably, than black Zimbabweans or other black Africans mm-hmm. would experience it. But I mean, what I found was interesting because it's not that simple. A lot of things that we embody that position us very differently in different societies. And in the case of Australia, what came up was how your accent is so important in fitting in, right? So when white Zimbabweans arrived in Australia, they, at least the ones that I interviewed, had assumed that it would be, you know, culturally close, right? Mm -hmm. Um, The climate is similar. You have a lot of So white South Africans, you also have a lot of white Zimbabweans. So there was an element of potentially blending in, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But there was also an element of exclusion based on accent, because when your accent was different, you were an outsider, even if you were white, even if you had assumed, even if you had, you know, heritage that brought you close to a lot of other people in Australia. So it was just an issue of how a lot of the things that we embody, they position us sometimes as insiders, sometimes as outsiders. And in the case of Australia, that's how the accent issue came up. It came up in the UK as well and in other locations as really a a factor of exclusion. I, I find these particular countries you've given as examples really interesting as well in that the first time I heard you talking about this, I had the same thought, I think, And that was like, oh, I can really relate to the performance of accent, right? Because, I mean, I think now 
foreign Australian, my accent is pretty neutral. Like it definitely is still Australian. But I mean, if I spoke with a really strong Australian accent, no one would understand me. <laughs> like pretty much everyone I talk to in Europe has English as their like you know fifteenth language, mm-hmm. and so you throw an Australian accent on, they're gonna be like, "What is this girl saying?" But then when I'm in Australia, and also when I'm in the UK, there's an element of performance because if you go out with a group of Brits, they're like, "Oh, you're the Australian," <laughs> so you end up sort of like piling it on, and you're like, "Wow, my accent is not normally like this." Yeah. <laughs> like, what's going on? And so it's it's really interesting. These two countries are the ones that. From a very different perspective, I find having to perform accent is, yes. is really, really important. Yes, absolutely. And and I think that the performance of it, of course, raises other issues as well, right? Mm-hmm. So in the case of Australia, and there's been studies done on this as well, looking at immigration into Australia and mm-hmm. how other immigrants experience Australia. So accent... I think for, at least in my research, it was interesting that some people felt like they could perform it. Mm -hmm. Others felt like it's something that they couldn't change. Mm -hmm. But for people who could perform it, they could feel a difference, right? Mm -hmm. So you you perform an Australian accent and then no one necessarily knows, at least until you tell them that you are not actually Australian, etc. Which is interesting, but again, that raises other questions of, how you would have to look like to get away with that. So mm-hmm. in the case of white Zimbabweans, they could get away with performing an Australian accent and then not having to explain much else. Mm-hmm. And for other immigrants that are very visible, you know, that also is not enough. Like performing the accent is not enough. Like there are other mm-hmm. factors as well that you can't perform because you're so visibly different. It's so interesting as you're saying this as well, because I think the unsaid thing here is that there's a, a hegemonic idea of what Australians look like, yeah, right? Absolutely. Which means that everyone else is excluded. Absolutely. But obviously, I mean, Australia has extremely visible migrant communities. Mm-hmm. I remember the last suburb I lived in, in Sydney, you can actually look it up with the Australian Bureau of Statistics and it shows the different populations of the different suburbs. And the suburb I lived in was 84% Chinese. Mm. And so, I mean, I was definitely visibly the outsider. I was also way taller than everyone. And so every time I went to the supermarket, I spent a lot of time grabbing things off high shelves, which (laughs) that really became my role, right? And so, you know, when we're talking about this idea of accents and inclusion and, well, of course, white Zimbabweans who can perform the accent are able to blend in better, it's blending into this particular idea of Australia as white, right, which is not accurate. Yeah. (laughs) And I understand there are some maybe similar dynamics in Zimbabwe as far as whiteness and hierarchy internally from what you said. Yeah, I think because of the history of of colonisation and the power structures that came to be, what then became Zimbabwe, I think after that, you still had being white as a position of privilege, right? Mm -hmm. Some of it would have been economic privilege that was quite ingrained into the structures, mm-hmm. social privilege as well, which is interesting because I think the social privilege is in a way also kind of awarded even by non-white Zimbabweans because of, you know, because of the way colonialism played out and the way people got to understand the position or the position of white people. It's like a global hierarchy of people, right? Where you have whites at the top and, you know, likes at the bottom, 
So I think also in social interaction, less so now, but mm-hmm. um, I remember certainly when I was growing up in social interaction, it was like that, that white people are seen as important, seen as people who should be served first in a queue, even if they're behind, et cetera. So I think that that's just part of, um, yeah, the legacy that you, you got out of colonization. Yeah, it's it's really, yeah, it's really interesting as you say this, because I mean, I'm having this like, visceral nausea <laughs> the whole idea of being served first because because you're white and I, like I'm very obviously conscious that time has moved on but a lot of these structures are still in place so they're still subliminal and subconscious and still affecting people's lives and obviously like being as a guy on the beach in Colombia one time called me <laughs> the whitest girl <laughs> that is, that is me. a lot of this stuff is is so invisible to me the way I look at it, it's like, well, a lot of the violence, the problems we go through as women is invisible to men. And they don't see it. I'm like, all right, well, now I understand how you can just not see things that are happening because they don't affect your daily life. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, when it gets really blatant like that and you're being served first in a queue, it's like, how can anyone live with this? Like, how can they feel that that's acceptable? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's interesting because I think, I mean, I think what's also interesting about it is the complexity, right? At least in my research, it was interesting to explore not only the race part of it, mm-hmm. but also to see race as just one element of whiteness. Mm-hmm. So it's not, it's an, it's an element of whiteness. It carries a lot of weight. Mm-hmm. But it's not everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's also the quite a lot of other elements that define whiteness that go beyond race as well, right? So you Are we would talking find like ugbits, like what's the <laughs> you know things like social class, things like even accent, as I'm saying, mm-hmm. in in specific places, even so. So if we had to think of race, for instance, if we had to imagine race as being the only thing then it wouldn't matter that much, right? Then people could blend in in spite of where Mm -hmm. they migrated to. There are certain people who migrate, for instance, to the UK, um, but the combination of being white, being lesbian, for instance, being of a lower socioeconomic class, it positions them outside of what is the the fictional center of whiteness. Mm -hmm. So in terms of the privilege that they experience, it's very differential. It won't be the same privilege as, you know, a, a white heterosexual middle-class man, for mm-hmm. example. So it's it's very interesting to see what, in my research, I call it differential whiteness, right? Mm. That you, Sounds like an equation. Yeah. <laughs> I'm having like flashbacks in algebra. <laughs> the differential, like, all right, differential and whiteness. Okay. But yeah, it's it's how everything intersects together, which is why intersectionality is also such an interesting concept to apply in that sense, because it's the intersections and the interaction between all these different elements. Okay. And so can we just dwell on this concept of intersectionality? Because we see this word popping up quite a bit. We see especially some voices on the internet getting really angry about this word. In fact, I had this strange experience one time where I had to join a lot of very pro-Brexit Facebook groups in my research. One day I made the mistake of answering a comment with, oh, it's at the intersection of, 
And apparently this was too close to the word intersectionality. And so I was banned from the group and it really messed with my research. (laughs) So it's obviously a term which is treated with a lot of weight, but can you explain to me what it actually is? Yeah, maybe without going into its history, etc., which is also important. But I mean, I think there's there's two layers. So you have the individual layer and the structural layer. So in terms of the structural layer, the way that society has positioned certain elements, so for instance, gender, way that is positioned if you're a woman, socioeconomic class, for example, being a migrant, for example, being disabled, for example, being black, for example. So these elements or these embodiments, they, at least at a structural level, they tend to put people in certain positions, right? Mm -hmm. Unfavorable positions. Mostly, I think when you look at, you know, race in terms of being black or gender in terms of being a woman and other elements. So you have that. And then at an individual level, then you would have to see the being of a person as the interaction between several factors in their life, right? So you as a being would be, you know, your social experience and the way you experience the world is because it's based on the interaction between you being a woman, being a white woman, being an employed woman, being an able-bodied woman. <laughs> employed. I was like, I'm not talking about me. <laughs> being an unemployed woman. Yeah. But yeah, but so the, the interaction of all those, your experience is a result of that, right? The, that intersectionality. And then you plug that into where society positions you as a result mm. of, of that whole calculation, mm. if, you, if you couldn't call it that. And, and that's interesting because it helps us to understand social positions, I think, in a more holistic way, mm. it also in a more political way, mm. and social experience as well in a more political way. Mm. Well, it's it's interesting because now we're on the, on the topic of unemployment because I had this conversation with a former student of mine in a cafe a couple of days ago and she's originally from Tanzania mm-hmm. and obviously she and I are both applying for jobs at the moment as third-party nationals. So we're not, we have no right to work in the EU unless we get sponsored. And so we were talking about this, this real challenge because on the face of things, I guess literally as well, we're both very different, but we have this shared migrant experience of wow it is so hard to get work here compared to a European I mean when I left my last job my European colleagues were like oh well you know be it a week or two and you'll get a new job and I'm like I don't think you understand how it works it's going to be like three four five six months before realistically I could get work in Europe again because Mm -hmm. that's a migrant experience and so I would talk to my former colleagues and they're like, well, you know, aren't you a resident? I'm like, look, I've been in Belgium eight years and I have no pathway to residency yet. And they're like, but, but you belong here. I'm like, well, I'm not sure if I belong in Belgium specifically. <laughs> but I'm like, well, yeah, this is what it is to be a migrant. Yes. I mean, everything's hooked to to your work and, and to your visas and this constant battle and this constant yeah. bureaucracy. And so obviously on the face of things, I have a lot of privileges and there's mm-hmm. no doubt about that. But that doesn't make you exempt from these other portions of intersectionality, which relate to your unemployment and to your migration status and so on. 
And that means that I have a different lived experience to my European colleagues who would otherwise look the same on paper. Absolutely. It's perfect. It really captures it. I can definitely see how that then plays into the conception of differential whiteness, as you put it. Yeah. And so I guess one question I have then is why you opted for the word whiteness? Like, is it because the sort of visible race element was the most important part of that cluster or did it come from participants or how did that actually work? Well, it actually came from critical whiteness studies Okay. because it's a whole concept on its own. Mm -hmm. So it's a concept on its own that captures race but beyond race, right, Mm -hmm. that really tries to understand the experience of, of being white but what else, you know, creates that kind of center mm-hmm. and the periphery. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a whole concept on its own. And it's been defined differently, of course, by different people. I think some of the, the references I make in my research is really seeing whiteness as the interaction between power, privilege, and identity. So the race element would come under the identity, but then you also have the element of power and the element of privilege, and that interaction is what would produce whiteness. Mm-hmm. And in your research, I recall there was part about migrants going between Zimbabwe and the UK and maybe back again Mm. and then having sort of different experiences in different places. Yeah, I mean, I think that's captured by transnationalism, right, Mm. which is really existing in more than one place at the same time. Mm. And I think this is the reality of a lot of migrants, that you're existing beyond borders so you're Mm -hmm. existing in the UK but you're also existing in Zimbabwe simultaneously Mm -hmm. and the the going back and forth that mobility part of it is just one element of it but beyond that you also have social media you have phone calls to family you have Mm -hmm. remittances and money that is sent home etc but yes the different experiences I think is is part of that as well and that applies as well I mean for migrants even beyond white Zimbabweans so and and that's interesting in terms of social position as Mm -hmm. well so for instance in our reality you would have migrants that are for instance doing work in the UK probably a menial job and I'm I'm using the UK as an example I don't live in the UK so maybe let's like think of Belgium so (laughs) you could have say if I'm here Mm -hmm. and the social position that I occupy here is quite a peripheral one. Mm-hmm. A black woman, an immigrant, possibly a low-paying job, etc. Right. So in terms of my social position here, I'm not an important person, probably quite You're invisible. <laughs> I'm not yeah. describing myself. I'm yeah, yeah, yeah. Describing <laughs> a fictional me. So so you would have a migrant like that, right? Mm-hmm. Living in Belgium under those circumstances. But the same person who sends money to Zimbabwe mm-hmm. is probably helping to build a community center in Zimbabwe while living in Belgium and working very hard, mm-hmm. right? So the way that they're seen in Zimbabwe and their social position there is very different. Like mm-hmm. when they travel to Zimbabwe, they are really an important member of the community. Mm-hmm. They're a helpful member of society, etc. So their social position is elevated there. But the other social position in the other place that they simultaneously occupy is completely different. It's it's on the periphery, it's invisible in some ways, etc. So, and this is the interesting thing about transnationalism, that mm-hmm. we would exist, and a lot of migrants are in this situation, that you exist in 
two places, maybe even more at the same time. And your social position in each of those places is really different. Yeah. And I mean, how do people cope with that? Or how do they integrate that or make sense of it? I don't know if they need to. In some ways, maybe it's not, like, I don't see it necessarily as a negative thing. Of course, different people experienced it differently, so I can't speak for anyone. But I, I can imagine that I think it also provides outlets in a way, mm-hmm. maybe more opportunity than if you didn't have that transnational life mm-hmm. in the sense that you can be marginalized in one context, but then you have another context in which you're not marginalized, which is not bad, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yay, yeah. a moment of freedom from marginalization. Yeah. Oh yeah. my goodness. I mean, it's ideal if you're not my, marginalized in any of these contexts, <laughs> but apart from marginalization, I imagine there's also some richness that comes out of just having different experiences in different places. But it's not always positive. It's really interesting in that if you're someone who's working in Belgium and you're not in this transnational situation and you have these perceptions of this person as being on the periphery in a society, this notion of them being really, really important in a different country yeah. is not visible. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that's that's really curious. And I'm wondering whether that ever leads to any conflicts. Yeah, I mean, that's a really um, good thought. I I imagine it does. Just like, because of course, I imagine it explains that part of conflict which comes from not understanding the full person Mm -hmm. or the full reality of a person. Mm -hmm. And I think there would be more empathy if there was that recognition of the full reality of uh, people. It's just that I think in the spaces in which people interact. I don't know if those spaces also provide enough opportunity for them to understand the full person, right? Often it's Mm -hmm. brief, often it's based on assumptions and Mm -hmm. maybe stereotypes and there's no platform to Mm. really get a glimpse of the other side of a person. That's one of the things I really like about your research because I think it's pretty well known that often migrants from poorer countries Mm -hmm. will send remittances back, right? But I think the implications of that as far as not just their community but also their role in that community is often missing. And I'd be quite curious about how knowing this would actually affect people's perceptions of those migrants in their countries. Yeah, yeah. I'd be curious as well. The the challenge, I think, is that it's beyond the personal You know, it's beyond the person standing in front of you. Often it's structural. Often it's the assumptions that are made about that whole country or Mm. that whole society. And and, and I think this is why, for me, it was interesting also to look at the experiences of white Zimbabweans, also Mm. because of the intersection of being white in a world way in this global hierarchy of people. Mm. Being white is quite at the top of the hierarchy. However, coming from Africa, coming from a poor country and migrating to the global north. Mm-hmm. So I think that it, like the combination is weird in a way, yeah. like it's like confusing. <laughs> and that's why it's interesting to see what comes out of this, because there you also then capture the experience of, okay, so apart from the person standing in front of you, mm-hmm. what if that person comes from? this part of the world where there are a lot of assumptions made about so many things that come out of there. How do you reconcile that with the human being that has been placed 
because of colonial history at the top of that global hierarchy of things. So it's, it's, yeah, it's beyond the personal and, and that's also, yeah, how do you surface that? I mean, what do you think will be the forum for that other than listening to this podcast and going, hmm, I wonder what's up with the, the various <laughs> migrants. And I say that as a migrant, but obviously as a, a different type in that I'm, I'm from a country where people don't typically send remittances to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so let's put it that way, right? And so that's a very different form of migration. I mean, I still wouldn't call myself an expat because I feel like that's a very exclusive <laughs> language. But, you know, but I, but I am a migrant. So other than listening to this podcast, what do you suspect would be a good forum for people to actually learn about people's different positions across the world? I think, I mean, I, in, in my research, I, sorry, I refer to my research a lot. But <laughs> I mean, you're actually talking about your research. I feel like that's allowed. <laughs> okay, thanks, Laura. You know, people have blogs, they have white Zimbabweans, mm-hmm. so they have their blogs in which they post pictures, they travel back to Zimbabwe on holiday, they reflect on how their holiday was and who they met and they show a lot of pictures from there, write articles. This was maybe a coincidence of people that were interested in really writing and blogs and articles, mm-hmm. etc. But what I found interesting about that as a contribution is that you could criticize the fact that it's still from a position of privilege, right? Mm -hmm. So it would still be a position of maybe visiting certain areas of Zimbabwe, Mm -hmm. you know, um, maybe more expensive hotels than the average person would visit, etc. There's all that and, and, you know, we can unpack that. But I think for me, the opportunity there is that if the audience is already a different type of audience, so if those kinds of blogs and articles would reach out perhaps to, I don't know, potentially maybe already a white audience. Again, you can criticize that. But I think for me, that effort is already kind of revealing another side of Zimbabwe, Mm -hmm. which I find is a different narrative from the kind of colonial narratives that we have on Zimbabwe, you know, that really like focus on on Africa in general and, you know, describing this bush where people are wild. And it's already going away from that because it, mm-hmm. it's talking about literature. It's talking mm-hmm. about food. It's talking about films. It's talking about, of course, nature, but also streets and, and seasons. And, mm-hmm. and it, it brings the place closer. It brings the place to context and it's, it reflects on it as a place where people live and they have culture, they have literature. And and for me, that's an important contribution. And I think it provides a platform to shed a different light. And in some ways, you could see at least the white Zimbabweans who engage in these kinds of transnational activities mm-hmm. as taking up the opportunity to, you know, reach out to a certain kind of audience and, and bring to life, this place that's sort of mystified, at least in, if we reflect on, you know, colonial narratives of mm-hmm. Africa. So I think there are efforts that are being made. This is just one, and I'm sure there are plenty of things we can think of or find. But I, I appreciated that, and I found it to be quite interesting. Apart from all the critique, I mean, we can always unpack anything and deconstruct it, but I think we also have to try and see through it and see mm-hmm. what it can offer as a contribution, right, in this space. Mm-hmm. And so I understand you did interviews for your research. So what were some of the interesting things that came out of that? There are a lot of interesting things that came up and and you can reflect on them in different ways. Mm -hmm. 
But I think some of the interesting ones, for instance, and I guess maybe all of us do this in different ways to try and and cling onto the thing that will humanize you at that point. Mm -hmm. So some of the things that came up were, for instance, in the case of the UK, Mm -hmm. where people felt like social class was quite important. And so to navigate out of the scrutiny Mm -hmm. of social class, some people would really emphasize their Africanness, you know, because that I do that with being Australian. Okay. <laughs> I'm like, I'm Australian, therefore I'm exempt from your weird class structure. Thank you. Exactly. Like this <laughs> lens does not apply to exactly. me. <laughs> I will not be obeying this structure. <laughs> yeah. And so and and then you're positioned as exotic and mm-hmm. out or outside of that scrutiny. I'm positioned right. as the charming convict. They- <laughs> Oops. That is that is the how I am positioned. Thank you. I'm allowed to break rules because it's endearing. But I mean, it's it helps you to kind of navigate out of mm-hmm. it. But then, the interesting thing is how we use these tools, and all of us do it. I think mm-hmm. in in different ways. So in the case of my interviewees, so there would be that tool. So then you become the exotic African. Mm-hmm. But then in some circles. That's not enough because, for instance, maybe you go to work and you're being explained to and being told racist things like, yeah, you Africans don't get it, you know? And then this person thinks, oh, wait a minute. I mean, I am British. I am of British heritage. My father is British. Mm -hmm. And so that's, again, kind of, okay, so being the African in this case is Mm -hmm. not humanizing me enough, so then I'm going to take something else and then claim my Britishness and my British heritage, because at this point, this is what is important and this is what will humanize me. And so it was interesting for me to observe how people were using all these different cards to navigate Mm -hmm. different situations. And and you could think of a hundred ways in which we all kind of use the different... Different hats. Yeah, different hats. I've got my Australian hat on today. Yeah. No, no, I've got my living in Europe hat on today. (laughs) No, 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 I've got my immigrant hat on today. Yeah. And I can can imagine that, of course, in terms of the way we experience the world or the ease of our experience Mm -hmm. in the world, the more of those favorable hats you have, Mm -hmm. the easier it is to navigate. Right. Mm. Because I think not all of us, some have more unfavorable hats than others, mm-hmm. depending on the context and how it defines what is favorable and, and amounts to privilege. <laughs> Which hats are in fashion? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> is that too far with the metaphor? And the fashion changes as well. Yeah. So yeah. Awesome. And how does this all get back to conflict? Yeah, I mean, I think coming back to conflict, it's also interesting to see or to learn the experiences that people get as the outsider, Mm -hmm. the one that's not privileged, Mm -hmm. the one that's trying to use different hats to navigate a difficult Mm -hmm. world. I think those experiences, if you take them back to the context of Zimbabwe, Mm -hmm. I think they are potentially good for understanding each other, you Mm -hmm. know, because someone who's used to being privileged and having an easy life and maybe doesn't understand people who are struggling more Mm -hmm. when they leave and they are exposed to struggle and being an outsider and being an outcast and it changes their perception as well. Right. And this is, I think in the context of migration, it's certainly important, but then going back to Zimbabwe in a place where 
historically you would have in also points in history where you had this tension between blacks and whites and this social position of privilege in the case mm -hmm. of white Zimbabweans. I think the experience post-migration was different. And in my research, I could see that the way people then looked back at Zimbabwe in retrospect from a different location was different. So mm -hmm. when you're privileged, you don't always see it, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's your norm. That's just your position in, in life. But the way people then thought back of Zimbabwe from the experience they were having in Australia or in the UK, people started thinking, that was racist. Like, that was <laughs> Whereas before they hadn't seen it that way because yeah. that was their reality. But because of the struggles that they were experiencing and being violated in some ways, being mm -hmm. excluded in some ways because of one thing or the other, mm -hmm. because of accent, because of nationality. So it sounds like one of the things we can do then to reduce social conflict is helping people have those opportunities to live different lives essentially in different countries in different cultures in different places to to gain that well first of the empathy for others but also mm. perspective on what their position is and what their privileges might be yeah so a worldwide scholarship scheme so everyone gets to travel all the time I'm okay with this idea <laughs> yeah I mean I think it always helps I came to Belgium when I was 16 as an exchange student mm -hmm. and I had studied French in high school mm -hmm. For four years, and I thought I'm going to be fine. <laughs> so I came and I was living in Wallonia mm -hmm. and with host parents, right? So mm -hmm. no one at home spoke English. Mm -hmm. No one at school spoke English, except I think I made two friends that spoke English and the English teacher. Those were the only opportunities to speak English. And of course, having studied French in high school, I thought I would be fine, but then the accent is different. People yeah. talk much faster, etc. And so for the first three months of that year, I remember sitting around the table mm -hmm. at home and just everyone would be laughing and having it. And I didn't know what they were talking about. Oh, and people would so then hard. like try to translate. I mean, everyone was very nice yeah, trying to yeah. translate to me. So it was very lonely. And then I caught up after like three months and then I was mm -hmm. fine. But, <laughs> but I think for, it was the first time in my life that I had an understanding of what it means not to understand a language mm. because I'd grown up in Zimbabwe. I spoke all the languages in Zimbabwe. I would never possibly be in a situation where I didn't understand what was happening around me. Mm -hmm. And I think this is also the nice thing about what you're saying, right? About travel and because we then get to be put in a situation where we can then imagine the situation of another person. Mm. If I hadn't had that Maybe I would have had it later in life. But at that particular point in my life, maybe in a school situation, if someone didn't understand a language, maybe I wouldn't have understood exactly what that means in mm. terms of how they're feeling. So it always helps, I mean, to be in different shoes. Sounds excellent for an empathy, more empathetic society. And so I guess then key takeaways from this conversation as far as social conflict goes are having those opportunities to live other lives. Yeah. Also sharing our experiences from where we are, like you gave the example of blogs and what have you. Yeah. And then perhaps looking at the fuller person in whatever form that might be. So, I mean, in, in mediation dialogue or what have you, where we look at not just who they are in front of us, but who they are in other positions in their life and around the world. I love this. It's like a, that's a recipe to help reduce social conflict. So I like this. Thank you. <laughs> 
All right. Well, look, Zena, thank you so much for joining me today. I feel like it's time to fill out your coffee cup again. <laughs> and so for those who are interested in learning more about your work, where can they find you? On LinkedIn. I think LinkedIn is a place to start and we can connect from there. Fantastic. And for everyone else, until next time, this is Laura May with the Conflict Tipping Podcast from Mediate.com. This podcast has been brought to you by Mediate.com. For more information about Mediate.com products and services, please visit us at www.mediate.com.